Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Avinash Koshik. Avinash is the Chief Strategy Officer at Crowd. He literally, and this is, this is some compliment to you, my friend, literally wrote the book on analytics. He's had an incredible career, which he is very much in the midst of at Crowd now. Uh, had about a 16-year tenure at Google, which we'll dig into. Uh, is really a legend in the space, and, and we'll come back to the book, Web, Anal Web Analytics 2.0, uh, but you literally wrote the book, so it's a thrill to have you here, Avinash. You're very kind. Thank you so much for, for inviting me, Matt. I'm thrilled to be here. No, this is absolutely terrific. Okay, so uh, we're going to start in an unusual place, and we're going to go all the way back to 1993. <laughs> you worked on the front lines of one of the great battlegrounds of all commerce in any location anywhere in the world, and that's the frontline customer service in the <laughs> overnight packaging business working for DHL worldwide. I cannot imagine a better proving ground. There's an old expression, the Aberdeen proving ground. I would yeah. think being on the front lines customer service at DHL in the early 90s, pre the internet explosion, pre, you know, pre so much of the way we communicate today, that must have been one heck of a training. It, it definitely was. I, 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 had, I had just done, um, finished my bachelor's of uh, mechanical engineering and much to my parents' chagrin, I decided to just completely go in an area that I, that was not engineering at all. But for me, it was such a fantastic way to uh, get to work with uh, lots of people in lots of countries instantly. I was based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, but every day I was working with people all across the world because DHL is such uh, the business that it is in. And then working in the front lines really taught me appreciation and a depth and breadth for customer love and customer experience that has stayed with me for the rest of my life. There's nothing crazier than a very angry Saudi person standing at the front door and saying, where's my package and screaming at you or, or a father that shows up and said, these, these, these results for my child have to be in Paris in nine hours. Can you make it happen? Just, just problem solving, working with different people, different situations. Um, it has, it has sort of stayed with me priceless education uh, before I came to the U S to get my MBA. So this is a question that I usually ask to people we have on from sort of the rock and roll and the pop culture world, but I'm going to ask you the same question I ask artists about touring. I would think that when you are in the business of solving high net worth and high value customer problems, most of them you probably solve, but once in a while, something probably goes terribly wrong. Do you remember something that went terribly wrong? Oh, uh, many instances. I mean, one, one of the things I think people uh, underappreciate about math is probability. You give, you have large enough numbers, something, a percent of things definitely go wrong. And of that, some are really, really going wrong. One of my, one of my early experiences is that um, one of the things we would transport at DHL is, is human parts, you know, from one place to another, hand carried. Um, and in very finite time so that a transplant can happen. And one of my first experience was that uh, an eye went missing. Oh my God. Missing. And I was like, oh my God, literally live in situation. And everybody's freaking out across Dharan and Jeddah and Riyadh. But luckily it, it, it was only a freak out for a small number of hours. Uh, the eye got to the person on time, but... But it was just just crazy to 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 see those situations, or or something stuck in in the customs in Anatolia, which is for the second richest person in Turkey. <laughs> oh my gosh! We have, we have all kinds of uh, sort of crazy situations, but 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 for me, the the ones that that I remember is just you know somebody trying to get a get a package or something special to a loved one in a completely remote part of the world, and how do you pull that off for them? Right, right. And, and uh, or 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 honestly, Matt, um, the sincerity with which you can apologize, it because some things it's unfixable; they just go wrong horrendously. And and how do you 
uh, one of the things I've, I've come to after I've lived in America for so long is just apologies have become insincere. You you really don't mean it. But but whether you're a high net worth individual or, or a normal net worth individual, um, I, I had to learn at times how to apologize with the depth of sincerity that didn't take away the, the pain and the upset, but on behalf of my company and myself, uh, because to them, I'm the company. Is, is you apologize in a way that it feels meaningful and sincere, and then you do things to make things up. Um, I, I was a young punk, you know, and I I, I had to learn and grow, and and and, and I I appreciate that. I, I I I like to think that I've retained the ability to sincerely and meaningfully apologize, and and more than apologize, do something to make it up, even if the original can't be fixed. I, I absolutely love that answer, and it's full of humanity. And and I know a lot of our conversation today is going to be about technology, but behind all that technology, underneath all that technology, is humanity. And uh, I love your story. It reminds me very much of lessons I learned as a young man when I used to work you know, in restaurants where I was washing dishes or being a waiter or a cook working in uh, the Windsor Park Deli, you know, in my neighborhood where I grew up in Queens or where all the bagel places where I used to bake at on and off for 10, for 10 years, I baked bagels. And, and you learn so much there or, you know, redoing the restocking. And how do you make sure that you put the old one in the front and the new one in the back and, and all of those things. So absolutely terrific. Your parents must have been happy, I'm going to guess, when you made a jump and took your first job sort of in business intelligence and left DHL. Oh, <laughs> they didn't rate me very, very high chances that I'll be able to get out of Saudi Arabia and, and get to the U.S. and, and have we were we were uh, more in the underprivileged category and America studying education is so expensive. And so Saudi Arabia was a way to earn money, save everything, uh, maybe only eat lunch and dinners, don't go out, right. don't have parties. And, and somehow you, went, you ended up in Ohio, didn't you? That's right, yeah. I, I applied to several universities in the U.S. I got into Arizona State, I got into Ohio State, and then uh, Texas. Uh, and I was already in a desert. So my entire criteria for picking Columbus, Ohio, was I thought, oh, I would love to stay somewhere where it snows. Uh, I didn't want to go to Arizona or Texas. It was already hot because I'm already in a hot place. And I tell you, uh, Matt, the, the first two weeks of snow in Ohio were glorious. I would wake up with joy every day with the white and the cold. And it was so fantastic. Uh, I only started to realize what happens when it starts melting. <laughs> that was not fun. Right. Not as much fun. Because I, I was still a poor student, you know, and and uh, I had to bicycle everywhere. And um, it was, uh, but but Ohio State is a fantastic university. I had a great experience. I I learned so many things from international law to logistics. And, um, you know, for my bachelor's education, it was all about grades and good grades and working hard. And one of my, my shifts in doing my MBA is that I'm going to go there to learn and not get good grades. Uh, I got okay grades. I did fine. Um, but I, I loved, this is where sort of I, I loved strategy and I loved complexity. I loved the Black-Scholes model for pricing options. And I, I really do think that when you do a master's, I, my high recommendation is go there to learn and not for the grades. There's a difference between the two. I, I absolutely love it. And and that really set you off in a very different path. And that's where your exactly. an analytics journey really began. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and right around that time, sort of, you know, Netscape had come out. And so this is super old, Matt. This is telling everybody how old I am. Uh, but but Netscape had just come out. And uh, I got an assistantship in the career servicing department, the career services department at Ohio State. And uh, as a part of that, I had to build a first database of students. They could contact alumni and things like that. And I sort of put that with a web front end and, I was amazed at what happens when even this simple data was made accessible to so many more people in the Office of Career Services. And it sort of got me started on this journey of trying to figure out um, how to use data in more clever ways. And I was very lucky that Silicon Graphics offered me a, a job in California, which is very, very much exactly in that place, which is to work in business intelligence, Silicon Graphics, figure out how to 
how to use data, how to use reporting, how to use analysis to allow Silicon Graphics across its many, many countries to make smarter decisions about all kinds of things related to the company. Uh, and that sort of got me, started me uh, on my journey to, to uh, live in the world of making data accessible and useful. Because I, I, I one of the things uh, people are, are surprised when I say is that I'm only okay at math. Uh, my wife is the smarter one in math. My, my children, <laughs> they do advanced math really well. But but for me, data doesn't equate just math. It's about understanding business, strategy, priorities. And, and of course, um, in, in the second half of my career, um, I, I focused narrowly on this idea of what does it mean to do marketing with data better? And that's where sort of I spend all my time um, is, is to figure out how to use marketing, not just to annoy people, not just to pump out promotions, but to drive long-term brand value, long-term brand equity, and to prove that it freaking works. It's not just the, 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 the person, the chief creative director who loves his little creative that's going to be entered into con, but it actually delivers customer delight that will deliver money at the end of the day. I'm, so I'm, I'm that guy that sits around and figures out how to use the data. To I, I love that you are literally leaping across the room uh, with passion, which and we are going to dig much deeper there but let's go back to something that you just sort of threw on the side and that's that there weren't a lot of expectations for a kid like you from where you grew up sounds like you grew up pretty poor uh that uh you beat the odds and not only did you get yourself uh out of rehad and saudi to america but you got yourself to silicon valley yeah. <laughs> Talk about that journey uh, and overcoming odds. And, you know, I'm sure once in a while you reflect quietly to yourself on that period and that journey that you have taken. Yeah, and it, it was, it was, it, it's, I, I think people don't appreciate like how, how, how difficult I came, I came to America in, in my, with, with, with a total of $5,000 in savings, which was enough money for the first four months of tuition and stay. And remember, I came to an MBA, which is an 18-month course. I was just taking the risk to say, I'll figure it out where the rest of the $30,000 is going to come from. It's, my wife thinks it's crazy now in hindsight. But but that that's it. And, 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 and it, it's everything. It, it's like scrambling to find a job that I could do for $4.25 an hour at Ohio State because I couldn't work off campus. I could only work in campus. And and literally for, for, for my MBA first year, Matt, I, I say that, you know, I, I only had enough funds to eat breakfast and dinner. Like I, I didn't have enough funds to eat lunch. Like I was super thin at the time. But I was just so obsessed about coming to this land of milk and honey, right? I, I really, like, I love the poem at the Statue of Liberty. That's the driving force. Give me poor hungry and to me America was this land of opportunity and I was as happy to come here and um, I, I think I was saved because uh, I got an assistantship for my second year uh, which paid tuition uh, so Mindy Kennard the woman who gave me the assistantship saved my life and career because there's no way I could have I could have finished my education or uh, the people at General Motors who gave me an internship between my first and second year where Matt, it blew my mind when they said to me, we will pay you $175 a day. Is that is that enough? Or, you know, negotiation. I was like, what? One fucking $75? It takes me like two weeks to earn enough money. And so, so Matt, until today in my life, I drive General Motors cars. It's, I am super loyal to General Motors. I, I, I they, love that. They saved me. And the cars are great now, but they've been some real clunk, clunker years <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. God bless you. So um, and then I, I ended up in Silicon Valley because the career services, they said, okay, go on all these interviews. And I needed a visa. And a Silicon Graphics had always come to Ohio State to the MBA program but had never hired anybody in five years. So I went sort of super loose to the interview because I was sure they're not going to give me a job. They're not giving anybody a job. But amazingly, at the end of our our uh, hour, they're like, "Oh, you should come to California. We we want you to interview more deeply and uh, just the thrill of my life." And then the day in California went really well, and and uh, it's too much. But Matt, I after the day of interviews, I I drove the car that they rented me. 
access to poor, um, to go to the Golden Gate Bridge. I remember standing on the Golden Gate Bridge and saying, God, God, please, please give me this job. <laughs> How I will make it in America without a job. And it, it just, but, but to, to, to me, what is amazing is it's, it's, um, it's the kind of hunger and passion um, to, to make something, to make something better. Um, it still stays with me every single day. Um, I, I'm, I'm blessedly uh, financially uh, secure a bit. Uh, we're, we're, we're good that way. Um, but I wake up every day with that, like that kid, uh, uh, that, 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 you know, 20 something year old standing on the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, just, just looking at the sun going down and saying, oh God, I, I wish this goes well. And it, it, until today, my wife doesn't understand this, you know, but I still wake up every day like that. Like, and I think it stays with you. And I, I feel lucky to have gone through the experience I have. Um, and, and I think it stays with me. And it's something I, I try and teach my kids uh, through, through, through how I behave. Absolutely fantastic story. I, I love it. And that you recall that life moment. We all have those life moments uh, in our career. Uh, you know, I, I remember very vividly with later in life, but I was going out to California to Silicon Valley to meet with, I think it was Greg Coleman, who was a big shot at Yahoo, really good guy. He was present global market, I, some very big job. And I think Dan, uh, Dan Rosenzweig, who was COO and maybe Cami Dunaway, who I love, a bunch of people at Yahoo. And I landed very late and I did not know the area and I went the wrong way not over the Golden Gate, but I went over the old Bay Bridge, Bay Bridge. The, the wrong way, which is like eight miles. And it was two in the morning in Oakland. There's no ways on your phone back then. And I'm like, I'm fumfering with a Rand McNally map, trying to figure out, you know, where I'm going to get back to, uh, uh, you know, where I needed to go. And it was just so, so Sunnyvale, I guess I was going to. Ultimately. That's right, that's right. That's right. But, yes, yes, uh, oh my God, was that funny. <laughs> You opened up two doors that I want to go through, and it's a little bit of a digression. And I'm going to throw both headlines out to you, and you could take one, both in either order, or just say you don't want to talk about it. We're having a tough time in America now. People that have come here for opportunity historically, like mm -hmm. you, like my grandfather who came through Ellis Island, he's one of those 15 million people. And now America is having a big, I'll use the word civil war with itself mm -hmm. over what to do with people who historically, and I'm not commenting on entering legally or illegally, but just the mm -hmm. concept that people have come here from other places where they didn't have much in search mm -hmm. of, as you referenced, the land of milk and honey. Mm -hmm. So your take on that. And then the second thing I want to throw out to you is you started off in Saudi, a place that was very different when mm -hmm. you were there as a young man. Now a real economic powerhouse. How mm -hmm. surprised are you at where they are today? And do you see that their uh, future rocket ship will continue to go up? Will it flatten out? Where do you think the Saudi story is going from a business vantage point? So two interesting questions, completely different. I'll let you take either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to opine on, on the first one. Uh, and and so, sometimes uh, it turns out data is is uh, not the data doesn't drive uh, opinions uh, and any uh, beliefs. Uh, you know, opinion does. And for me, as an immigrant who has come to America. Uh, pays pays forty six percent in tax for twenty five plus years that I've been here. Uh, I believe that we gain more from immigrants, whether they arrive on our shores underprivileged or they arrived with privilege or things. Uh, all the data we have in America, published by uh, right wing, left wing think tanks, doesn't really matter, demonstrates that over a long period of time, immigrants will will work out of the situation they are in and they will work super hard and they will become meaningful contributors to society. Whether you look at the number of companies started in Silicon Valley, number of people in Texas who pay taxes or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, 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 I hold a, a, a liberal welcoming view to the world 
from my own life and uh, what I have seen in the data about our country, America, uh, in others. And we are not lacking space. We're not lacking uh, opportunity. Uh, the, the whole myth around foreigners come and take American jobs and, and Americans become unemployed, it, it's just a myth. It it's truly is a myth. It, even the littlest of data would destroy it, that myth. But, but one thing we have to recognize, Matt, is whether um, look at Israel and Ethiopians. Just last week, the big stories about Israel kicking out a whole bunch of Ethiopians. Or you look at England and Rishi Sunak's policies here. Or you look at Japan. Or The, the whole immigrants are a convenient boogeyman. Politically, they are very convenient. Um, and it's a very emotional topic. Uh, I hold uh, a more liberal approach towards it based on both my experience and data. And, and um, I think Ameri immigrants make America stronger. Uh, immigrants make America vibrant. Immigrants make America richer and more influential in the world. It, it's something I deeply believe in my heart. And, and any data you can put your hands on will show that. I think America's strength over the last 200 years has been its diversity. And I do sincerely hope that we don't lose it. Different waves of immigration at different times. Um, in terms of, in terms of um, Saudi Arabia, uh, according to all estimates, um, even at the worst case scenario, Saudi Arabia is not going to run out of oil for another uh, 80 to 90 years, even if they pump at the current rate. So there's a lot of money flowing into Saudi Arabia, and it will continue to flow through the rest of our lifetimes, Matt, and maybe our children's. But what has always been challenging for Saudi Arabia is can it do what Dubai has done or what Abu Dhabi has done or what Singapore has done, which is diversify its economy fast enough. And what you've seen over the last 20 years, accelerated over the last five, is that they are now putting meaningful efforts to diversify the economy and, and those are yielding results. Whether it's the Gulf League news we hear or whether it's Saudi Aramco, the, the money printing press that sits near Dharan, buying all kinds of all kinds of uh, green initiatives, investments. Uh, it doesn't really matter. They're seriously diversifying it. I think the, the up and down of Saudi Arabia will come from the, the, the future growth evolution of the royal family. Um, it was easier to do things in Saudi Arabia for the public and stuff. Uh, about 20, 30 years ago because there were fewer royal princes and princesses and it was easy to maintain control of the money and the economy. Um, as that family has grown, views have grown. So do they go down the hardline method of the of MBS and, and his sort of approach to the royal family? Or is there a change in the royal family in the way the royal family functions that will influence the outcomes? But, but it, it's not so much the economy and the money, but it's the power dynamics inside the royal family that will dictate if the engine that is Saudi Arabia continues to grow uh, or, or, or it, it gets shaken through some, some shocks that change the direction of the company. And I think most people don't appreciate the royal family dynamics uh, and its role. They just say, like, oh, they're like, you know, human rights abuses, true, of course, uh, or, or, or it's money or oil. No, no, it's actually this, the fact that this family had three princes now there are 62,000 princesses. And now in, in, in 20 years, there will be like 300,000 of these royal families. How do you control everything? How do you control the money? Who gets to say? Where is the ambition? It's, it, it's that that will drive the outcomes. In, in my in my humble humble opinion as a non-political expert. Yeah, no, and, and not, nor am I. It, it, it's interesting to watch. And I think... You know, I happen to be a PGA fan and I didn't like the whole live thing. And I'm yeah, interested, yeah. interested to see, you know, if this deal ends up happening. I think it's comical that Senator Blumenthal has subpoenaed, you know, Saudis to come to testify <laughs> in Washington about live. And, you know, I am 150 percent sure they will just completely ignore it and get away with it. Um, but I think there's an awful lot of hypocrisy. Saudi is a huge trading partner of the United States. That's right. That's right. That's and right. there is an enormous amount of hypocrisy, including my own analysis of the whole thing, uh, let alone most pundits. So interesting. It'll be interesting to watch. I, I, I bet on them, you know, as a comer, I think they're still going to be uh, very much on the rise. Uh, the next several years and it's trending strongly in the direction and you know what you had said in terms of dubai abu dhabi singapore the old hong kong all 
exact models for what they're trying to create there. No question. Yep. Yeah. It'll end up looking a little bit like Disney Epcot, I think. Um, <laughs> okay. So let's keep going with you and your journey, your uh, analytics strength and leadership in the space gets you promoted. You're working, you're getting higher up the ladder. You end up at Intuit in a big job. You know, you're rising up the ladder. You're still a pretty young guy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 um, I've been, I've been very blessed that 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 through the the hard work and the value that that I added over at Silicon Graphics, DirecTV, and then Intuit, uh, that I was able to keep uh, being uh, rewarded with more responsibility uh, to to have a bigger impact. Um, and then for me, it was simply about trying to figure out. Oh, I learned this. I learned this a lot later. Uh, but trying to get better at figuring out to and, and skate to where the puck was going to be. And so at, at every one of these steps, I try to figure out what is the next thing going to be. And so I got into web analytics from from business analytics uh, before it became sort of really cool, big and interesting. And then got into broader digital analytics just before it became really cool and big and things at the company. And I think that that helped sort of uh, put put uh, allow me to go go for the opportunities where where um, regardless of age, uh, I was able to 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 take more responsibility and figure out how to add value. I, I remember Matt, one of the I went for a promotion a while uh, in in my time at DHL at the end of my first year and a half, and I didn't get the job. And I thought I could totally get do the job really well. I was told in the interview, you are too young. And I it hurt my feelings at that time. Not no, no, but qualifications great, hard work great. You're too young. And I, I remember I, I looked at the recruiter and I said, white age is a sign of wisdom. And <laughs> it's not a sign of wisdom, it's a sign of age. And and I, I've tried to figure out how to how to model or 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 figure out how to clarify my value proposition. So Age is not a thing that I need to think about now. I'm now I'm old, so it doesn't really matter. But but I think it's important to think about how to focus on communicating the wisdom part, so people can look past the age part whenever that becomes a barrier for you. Yeah, I, I think it's funny to uh, be on the other side of <laughs> yeah. the age. You know, I'm 59 now. I'm pretty much always the oldest one in the room now. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure when that happened, but uh, I certainly <laughs> agree on the front end. Um, uh, young age is no barrier, should be no barrier to anything. Yeah. Your passion to be an evangelist, let's use that word, for the power of analytics to drive marketing leads you to help educate others. Can yeah. we talk a little about market motive? Oh, yes. No, no, absolutely. So one of the things that, that uh, I... I uh, my 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 uh, job at Google was to figure out how to get large companies, small companies, um, uh, use data in more clever, smarter ways, faster. And and uh, one of the things I discovered during the period is I would go see CEOs, board of directors, uh, help them think through business strategy, tie back to analytics and KPIs and modeling and so on and so forth. But one of the things I found is that there's not a lot of people who could do all this work. And then I, I was very lucky that I was asked to teach some classes at Stanford or UCLA or the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. And, and what they were teaching was, was more sort of, I would call traditional uh, and a few years behind still to what was possible in the real world. So uh, two friends of mine, John Marshall and, and Michael Stebbins uh, and I decided that we'll start a little company. And then what we will do is, is actually teach people the most bleeding edge analytics tactics and strategies, the, the way to both think about doing much clever analysis, but also show them and, and the, the tools and how to use them. And that led us to forming Market Motive, uh, which offered seven different courses, you know, PPC, PR, analytics, SEO, so on and so forth. Uh, and then people would go through an intense quarter's worth of education, at the end of which they had to Pay, uh, produce two sets of analysis dissertations, we call them, and then they would they would get certified if they learned a lot. So the the entire thing was to increase uh, the number of people in the world who could do uh, who could do the kind of analytics that businesses required now, because we felt universities and schools were quite a bit behind in being able to teach those skills to people. 
So we created this intense curriculum for them, and it and it it uh, it worked very well. We 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 got white labeled by lots of companies like Intel used it to teach all its all its employees sort of digital literacy and skills and so on and so forth. Um, and so so uh, it ended up being sort of the right moment, right time to take uh, leading edge education to 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 help create more savvy marketers and analysts in the world. So uh, let me throw something out to you, and uh, I'm curious to get your take. I've done a little bit of teaching over the years uh, as well. I taught in the Columbia Business School many years ago. I taught at NYU uh, a number of times. Uh, it seems to me that when it comes to the technically driven parts of our industry, mm -hmm. the engineering piece, mm -hmm. that our education system, undergrad and grad, is doing very well. Do you think at the grad level in particular, when it comes to the softer parts of our industry, the marketing and communications disciplines, and understanding how the marketer's toolkit has changed so much, do you think the schools are keeping up or are they behind? From my experience, I would say they're rather behind. I, I was just in, in Chicago as a part of a marketing class. I won't name the university. Um, and the professors were still teaching the four Ps of marketing. And, and I had to say, I sincerely apologize, professor. But I, in the last decade of working with the top 100 companies on the planet, I haven't seen a single CMO who was responsible for four Ps. They're responsible for the last one. <laughs> and that's it. And, and you're literally teaching these people something doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Instead of saying, hey, that last piece, all that remains promotion because, because product price place, they're all now specialized. There's a chief product officer, there's a chief retail officer, there's a chief, uh, the financial officer has taken over promotions. All, all, all you have is, is left, uh, sorry, price, uh, promotions. But the promotion is excluded. The number of things we could do what defined promotion uh, 15 years ago was only three or four bullets. And now I, I literally got on the whiteboard and wrote down and I had to stop after 14 bullets. The role has become so much more complex and so and, and so full of possibilities, profitable possibilities. But that's not what's being taught at, at the grad school level. At every, and I, I have less exposure to the undergrad level. Um, and then there needs to be there needs to be more of a need to shift very quickly to the world that exists, because otherwise what happens is these these uh, wonderful men and women are coming into the workforce and they find that they have to go to market mode. They have to relearn all this new stuff yeah. uh, and unlearn a whole bunch of other things so that they can actually be effective in the marketplace. Yeah, we have the same exact take and that's that uh, ahead on engineering, way behind on marketing communications, almost like they're using, you know, textbooks like we used yeah, in yes, school, yes, yes, yes. you know, that were written, you know, uh, in a different era. Let's talk about your journey to Google. Uh, you uh, spent uh, a career there, more than half your career, about 16 years, uh, and rose all the way up the ladder to senior director of globally strategy, uh, strategic analytics. Talk about the journey, how you got there, and your rise up the ladder from an evangelist. I love that that was your title um, mm -hmm. to the senior director overseeing all global strategic analytics for Google. That's an awfully big job. Yeah. You, yes. No. It was. It was. It, it, I, I feel. I feel so lucky to have had the, the opportunity to be a part of of, of Google's. Uh, uh, Google's rise during all these years. Uh, I, I actually uh, had started writing a blog uh, the last couple of years of my time at Intuit because a couple of people encouraged me to write because they saw me speak somewhere and they said, oh my God, you should write a blog. And I thought, well, wait, only arrogant people write blogs. This <laughs> is like 20 years ago now. Um, but they persuaded me and so I'm, I'm ever so grateful to them. Uh, and that sort of converted into a book uh, uh, because Wiley called me and said they want to make the blog into a book. And I said, why would people pay for something that's free? Um, turns out that they were right and I was wrong because lots of people paid for the book. And so that was my first book in Romantics in our day. And, and that's sort of one of the things that happened is uh, somebody at Google said, oh, come give a talk. Uh, uh, authors at Google talk uh, to our company on, on your book. And so that's how I, I went to Google. And when I got off the stage, 
uh, a senior person at Google come came up to me and said, oh, we want you to come work at Google. And I said, well, what would I do? Uh, and, and, and Matt, I, I was so shocked. Uh, they said, we don't know. We just want you to come work here. And, <laughs> and I went to home and, and I told my wife and she's like, so no job description? <laughs> no, no job description. And so, of course, she's like, that's stupid. And so I said, no. I said, <laughs> but but I, I, I feel I feel great in hindsight that they 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 were generous enough to 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 keep following up over the next six months. And, and then they gave me the, a deal that I could never refuse, which is they said, why don't you come work here as a consultant? We'll take your current compensation package into it. We'll convert salary, bonus, equity into an hourly rate. And we'll guarantee it for a year. Come work for a year. See if you love it. If not, you lost nothing. You just go back. And so I, that's that was a hard deal to to refuse. And I I, I also think because you know wives are so influential. My wife said, "So you really want to go do your stupid passion thing?" <laughs> that about captures why I ended up at Google. It's because I wanted to do my stupid passion thing, which is build tools, teach people how to use them, create a data democracy. And I was so lucky that that I was a part of launching Google Analytics, that amazing tool that people use, and then and then more than that to use uh, to 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 teach people. I, I always one of my favorite quote is is uh, from the cartoon editor of the New Yorker. Uh, he says, you know, they asked him how does he pick from the hundreds of cartoons every week, and and his his reply was, it's not the ink, it's the think. Right. I love I love that quote. Right. And so so I have dedicated my life uh, when I started at Google to figuring out how to increase the think that people build bring to their work rather than the ink. Like, ah, oh, I have all the tools, the tactics. I don't care. I want to improve the think. And Google allowed me to do that. Uh, I spent about five, four years doing that. And then I moved to the sales team to work for Tim Armstrong and then Margot Georgiadis. Because they said, oh, you go speak to our clients and then they give us a lot of money. So you should just do that full time. Right, right, <laughs> right. So I, 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 I helped build a, a sort of a, like a strategic consulting practice inside Google sales, like a little BCG McKinsey type consulting practice. You just go to work with the biggest companies in the world, help them to redo, rethink their business strategies online and specifically their marketing strategies non-line anywhere. And that was like a really great experience because I'd be in Japan with some company one day and then Tokyo and then, sorry, Singapore and then and then London and work with Pfizer one day, Remax the next day. And then mm -hmm. American Express, these companies have nothing in common and yet work with very, very senior leaders to influence them at the highest level to move hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it's not even, not even, and it's not even in service of Google just to, create more business profit. Because one of the things I love about working during the time at Google is they never cared about if I added anything to Google's revenue. They just said, help companies create better strategies. And if you do that, some of the money they'll spend on Google, but don't worry about it. And then that's sort of liberating to have a company have that level of faith in you. And so I, I did that for about five-ish years. And then um, uh, Lorraine Tuhill, who's the CMO of Google, um, wonderful, wonderful CMO, um, she she invited me to come work uh, in her team because Google spends billions of dollars on marketing itself um, across 13 businesses that it has from Google Cloud to the Pixel phones to the SMB ads business. Uh, and I had this amazing privilege of answering this really simple question, Matt, because in a first meeting with our CFO at Alphabet uh, Ruth, she asked this very, very simple question. She said, what would happen if I fired everybody in marketing? And, and I said, I I don't know. Give me some time. Because <laughs> how do you how do you boil the ocean? Put put everything we do, product and design and email and SEO and TV and billboards and social and, and answer that CFO question. And I really appreciated those last six years at Google because I played with massive amounts of data, massive amounts of money. I learned a lot about the power of creative. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, Matt, this, this might be old news to, to, to folks such as yourself, but I was like very much a quant person. And I was so shocked when I did analysis of five years worth of data and found that the single biggest factor to improve profitability of a business with marketing, 60% of the factor is creative. Mm. And I was like, shit. 
I need to get good at creative. <laughs> I need to get good at creative testing. I need to work with all these amazing geniuses in black turtlenecks and tone jeans who sit in ivory towers and come up with insane campaigns. Um, and and um, but I was able to to build um, uh, use machine learning, use sophisticated statistical algorithms uh, to go back to Ruth uh, a year later and actually answer her question and say, if you fire everybody in marketing, these are the incremental sales and revenue you will lose. And for every uh, product sold by marketing, this is the cost for incremental sale. And it transformed the way that Lorraine was able to prove to Ruth what her entire team was doing across 14 countries. And, and it just led to a very different way in which we did marketing budgets, in which we made decisions, how we balance for the short and the long, how do you spend hundreds of millions of dollars on TV and justify it based on profit? We we invented things to measure that. Uh, and so it was, it was a really great learning experience. What a, what, what a great story. But the common thread going back to an earlier part of our conversation is your passion to prove how analytics drives marketing strategy and drives results. So it seems the common thread here is whether it was something you were doing that was internal facing as it was towards the end with Lorraine or at the beginning when it was external facing working with clients, that was the common strand of DNA. Exactly right. Like what, what, I'm, what I'm really interested in is I, I always say that, that, that uh, when my mom asks me what I do, I, I tell her I help people make better decisions. And, and I help people make better decisions in two clear areas, one from DHL and one that has become the purpose of my life. And the first one is we use marketing dollars first and foremost to deliver customer delight. That is very important to me. This is why I'm obsessive about brand marketing as an example. Right? And that the second is use data to change company strategy. And, and to me, these two things go together. And I, I think my, my function in, in life through all the work I do is to say, I can prove that customer delight, me, focusing on customer delight rather than annoying people, interrupting them, throwing promotions and coupons day and night, that delivering customer delight is a more profitable strategy over the short and the long term. And it, it, it's, it's actually harder to prove and harder for people to embrace than I'm making it sound. Um, but it has been so exciting to, to work with companies as diverse as Chanel and Expedia and, and, and actually do the same two things, but obviously in completely different contexts and purposes. And, and for me, data is, is really great because it, it allows me to bring the customer point of view, their experience, their results, to what usually used to be a very opinion or ego-driven process. Um, and, and for me, it's, it, I, I'm still the customer evangelist inside the company. I, I absolutely love that. So you have this incredible run at Google and one of the things we've observed about the company, and we've talked to a lot of people here on Great Minds from Google, they don't get enough credit for how long they keep their senior talent. I've spoken to a lot of people who have been there 12 years, 14 years, 16 years, 18 years. I got to think a decision like that for you to leave had to be a tough one. It definitely was. I, 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 I... I had, I had stayed at Google for so long because it, it continues to be a company that I'm excited about. And sort of roughly, Matt, every five-ish years, I completely changed my job. And, and it was a company where you could do that. Right. Start in engineering, build products, then you go to sales, to, to consulting, these kind of things, then you move into the internal facing role in marketing. Very different challenges, people, team, scale, so on and so forth. Uh, but after these three roles, uh, I, I thought, okay, uh, time to, to, to do something somewhere else because I felt that I had, in each area, I had built uh, teams. They were, one of the things I've, I've always uh, believed as a career strategy is uh, make sure that you always work yourself out of a job. Otherwise you won't go up or out. So like after this last role, they were, I had I had three leaders. They were ready to, more than ready to, to take over and go on without leading me in any way. They were already brilliant. And so I started to, to consider doing something different uh, and then part of it, Matt, was that uh, both my kids were off to university. And so I thought, okay, here's, here's a little more freedom. I could do something that, that I might otherwise not have considered staying anchored in California, which is where our home still is. 
uh, and the crowd opportunity came up and there were a couple of others. Um, and I, I'd always thought it would be kind of fun. Market Motive was a great example of building a business and then selling it to a company five years later, completely bootstrapped. And a crowd was in this perfect place where it's it's a big enough agency. It's it's trying to do something very different compared to other independent agencies. They're backed by the Lloyds Bank, and which has a proper exit already planned for it. And so I thought oh, it'll be a really great place to go somewhere, work intensely for a couple of years, transform the valuation of the company by doing uh, by creating customer centric solutions that are at the very bleeding edge of what is possible. Some of the things I had done at Google, at other companies. Um, and create value for all employees in the company. So this is the, and I'm now spending about 40% of my time in London, 50% maybe, uh, we have an apartment here in Camden, um, spending about 30-ish percent of my time, 40% in New York, very little time sadly in California, but it's this, it's this nice, nice opportunity to do something that doesn't come across your path uh, too often and have the freedom from a family perspective where my wife is happy to follow me uh, and and let me do another round of my stupid passion thing. Oh my goodness, that poor woman. So <laughs> let's talk a little more about Crowd. It's about a dozen years old, is a real innovator in the space. You have offices in many parts of the world, uh, including uh, LA, including Dubai. Uh, love that you're in Camden. What a great, great part of London. Talk about Crowd and give us a little bit of the story and where you see the company going when we talk again in a year or so. Yeah. So uh, uh, Crowd is about, about a dozen year old founded by uh, Luke Smith and Ben Knight. Uh, and, and their goal was to figure out how to, uh, to, to solve for the explosion of digital possibilities for all kinds of companies uh, from a performance marketing perspective. So they were very much digital, very much performance marketing. But what they decided in their foresight is to, rather than build a company with hundreds of thousands of people, they built out this custom built platform called, we call it crowd control. I think of it as our own uh, uh, Upwork type solution where now we have three and a half thousand people on our platform, um, which is which does atomization of work. Uh, it, it, it fragments it out to the best people in the world to do the work. It does QA, uh, all kinds of, uh, algorithms uh, uh, deployed to that. So we can be a small company of 600 full-time people backed by three and a half thousand crowdies in like a hundred countries and are able to flex and solve problems at a scale that is uh, sort of very unique in, in our landscape. So that, that's been um, that's been sort of a special sauce that was really great. Um, um, the second thing uh, I, I, I think that, that I wanted to share is that um, over the last couple of years, we're growing into brand marketing, we're growing into offline marketing, we're growing into uh, much more sophisticated analytics. And so, so that's what has been transformative as we become a full service agency. And over the last um, year that I spent time, we've, we've taken on a little bit of the, the strategic consulting practice that, that I had done at Google such a long time ago, because I'm still passionate about transforming companies. And so working with some of the, the larger companies to think about people, process, org, skills, strategy, AI, uh, and, and help companies put execution models in place that are not just about paid media and not just about analytics, but let's sort of think about transformative impact on companies. So that's sort of the last piece we're doing um, that I'm really excited about, just, just the growth. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad to say that uh, our colleagues at LDC, our, our private equity funders, uh, they have been very happy in the last bunch of board meetings, which which is always nice, Matt. <laughs> no, no question. The opposite can be quite painful. So it sounds like this is going pretty well. And I would think it has to be giving you a different kind of energy to get to be in all these exciting and great cities where you've been spending time. It, it definitely is. And, and I think one of the things that that's, that's uh, I've come to appreciate about my colleagues at Crowd, uh, as well as our clients, is um, now we are having more deeper engagements. So I was just in Switzerland for two days and uh, spend spend those days intensely with with about twenty CEOs of this this uh, particular large brand, uh, and and we're going to do the engagement over the next year. Actually, build out and deliver these things in a deep and meaningful way. And sometimes in the past I had these finite engagements. I go in, spend a week, deliver a new strategy, then go move on to the next client. I, I do love that I can be a part of the transformation and, and 
And uh, like I can go on a journey with Sandeep or Pooja and, and say, okay, we're gonna do this over a year and together make a meaningful contribution to our business. And that part has been very exciting to me. Well, absolutely great story. And that uh, journey of true digital transformation is one uh, that you are a real sort of quiet force in and have been for so many years. And uh, your uh, passion for it is so revealing and tells so much about you and the effectiveness that you've had uh, both internally you know, going all the way back to DHL in those early days and learning how to apologize, which I, I happen to agree with what you said on that and how important that is and uh, how a genuine apology and empathy is very different from someone who's being disingenuous and just trying to move the conversation along. So I, I get that also. And crowd sounds like uh, the future is bright. Uh, I think they made a pretty good acquisition in you and I, I feel very lucky to be here I, I'm, I'm so excited uh, uh, about what my colleagues are doing and, and what our, our company is able to do for some very large brands uh, it is exciting to see see uh, not just the vision be be adopted but actually see results flow back to the clients it brings me sort of enormous joy and and along the way you learn things Matt I've continued to write and there's one of my great learnings oh, uh, after the George Floyd uh, protests, I used to write a newsletter at the time. I said, you know, I, I, I need to raise more money because I'm a very, very passionate about, about civil rights. And I converted my newsletter to a paid newsletter. And I decided, okay, whatever money I raise, I'm going to donate to charity. And one of, the, one of my great learnings over the last few years is how, how if you're really passionate, stick to delivering value in the world, money shows up. So in the two and a half years that the paid newsletter has been around, uh, I have raised about half a million dollars for charity. That's the 100% of the revenue of the newsletter is donated to charity. And, and it's, it's, it's like a really small example of how um, digital, create the, the world we live in creates these opportunities where you can do surprising things and, and raise half a million dollars with a whole bunch of people who just like reading you and would have read you anyway. Uh, but they're happy to chip something in so you can do a little tiny bit of good in the world. Absolutely love it. What a joy to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us here. I love your passion, and this was a great, great story. Thank you, Matt.